Hello and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity, where we have conversations about life, theology, and the church in the culture. Uh, and this is not just any episode, this is actually this is actually our 50th episode, and for this one we, we pulled out the whole cast and crew, Matthew Lee Anderson, uh, Andrew Wilson, and Alistair Roberts are all here, and for this episode, for this 50th episode, this most special of episodes, we wanted to uh, do kind of an Ask Me Anything uh conversation. So we had you guys write in some questions for us and we're going to go ahead and take that. But you guys want to say anything? Chime in, fellas. Um, is this the episode where we finally decide which one of us is kicked off? <laughs> no. Well, you now. I mean, that's that comment alone just disqualifies further participation. Um <laughs> Oh, oh, so sad. Yeah, sad. <laughs> wow. Okay, so with that, with that out of the way, um, <laughs> we're going to go ahead and get to some of the questions. Uh, one of the first, I think the first question that kind of makes sense to, to lead off with, somebody asked how we kind of decided to get this thing going. And I want to say it was a little bit of a roundabout thing. Uh, I'm not going to take all the credit, you know, but uh, I think about how long we've been doing this, a year and a half now? Um, Alistair, Andrew, and I had wanted to have a chat. I think we, we'd all just started reading each other's stuff and we wanted to interact. And so, you know, let's, let's talk on the phone. Am I getting this wrong? I think I'm not. Um, did you, did you think of it as a chat at that time? Had he already infected your American mind with his British? No, maybe not. I might've, <laughs> might've thought of it as a talk. So a phone call, um, as, as men, uh, so we figured we'd, we'd get on the phone and just, just talk, um, about some issues. And then about the same time Christ and pop culture had started up their podcast again. So I'd been on one of those episodes and I thought, geez, this isn't that hard. We should just record this and see what happens. Right. So we, we decide to do that. And I think at that point, Matt wasn't fully, Matt wasn't in and I emailed him, told him what we we're going to do. And he very characteristically, demanded, no, we will host this at mere orthodoxy. Uh, and so for the first couple of episodes, um, it was Andrew Alistair and I, and we were calling it casting across the pond, uh, which I, I still think was a clever name. Uh, but I think around that time we, we just, we had a couple of these conversations. We thought, Hey, this could, this could work. And then we pulled Matt in for a conversation uh, I don't remember on what. And we thought, no, the four-man team works. The four-man team works. Let's go with this. And then from there, we just kind of kept the ball rolling as skillfully or ineptly as possible. I don't know. Huh. I mean, that's the timeline I remember. I remember this okay. differently. Let's have some let's have some. I debate. remember. Maybe, maybe this is just my... My vanity. Probably. But I remember being a part of the original plan from the very beginning and just being unable to record those early ones um, for scheduling purposes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is both a little bit high <laughs> on a, atop the high horse of Anderson. I remember for scheduling purposes being unable to talk to you. <laughs> But it's okay because in the end I deigned to grace you with my presence. And I'd also like to modify some of Derek's comments. The reason we didn't call it Casting Across the Pond is, one, because it's – I don't think it was clever. It was a bit of a weird 
just sounds weird anyway. And the acronym would be Cat P, which would not be good at all, even for Alistair, who I know is quite a fan. Um, it, it, I just I don't think that was ever a serious discussion. So I would my memory of it is that Derek's pretty much right, except we needed Matt because we needed a place to host it and we needed a controversialist in our midst. There you um, go. And those two things he has brought in spades. <laughs> the other thing is I, we had our first I episode. Do, um, Alistair, do you have anything to add I mean, on the subject? To the timeline? Our first episode was on the subject of the future of Protestantism um, oh, right. conference. And we had an absolutely brilliant conversation on that subject for an hour, and someone forgot to record. Not mentioning yeah. any names here. But. <laughs> I was not present. That, that one was, one. That one was that me. me. That, that one was time. me. I forgot to hit record, and we had this great conversation. And then we tried to have it again. And our second episode was just meandering and terrible. And so we never posted it. So there you go. There are two lost episodes into the ether um, <laughs> that began this whole enterprise. On my role on, my role on this podcast, um, I will say in response to Andrew's suggestion that I am a controversialist, which I am not, um, that he will dispute that point. Reading. I knew that he had come back with this. And it's important. It's important that I dispute that point. Um, and it's, it is maybe the most successful thing for a podcast that I would dispute it. Um, I was reading, uh, Fred, Freddie DeBoer recently, who was talking about podcasts and, um, about some article that says that most podcasts are uninteresting because there's no disagreement on them because no one's willing to countenance, um, real, the, the discomfort of having to talk with each other while, um, while not agreeing with one another. And so I think actually the disagreements that we have, and we should get to more of them if we can, um, but the disagreements that we have are probably the most important thing that we do. Yeah. Well, I'd argue with that point, so but take that, uh, we don't have time. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of the story. I think, um, Oh, uh, credit goes to on the name. We had a long discussion about the name, uh, going back and forth. Um, I still think not an inkling would have been great, but whatever. Uh, credit goes to Jordan Baller, and I hope I'm saying that right because I'm not an unrepentant sinner about name pronunciations the way Anderson is. Um, but Jordan Baller, I think, came up with and many other yeah, things. Uh, mere fidelity. So credit to him. Thanks for that. Um. And then the bright orange logo, that is all that is all Matthew Anderson's skill as a graphic designer. True. 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 But of course, um, credit credit most of all to our audience for actually turning this into a real thing and taking it far beyond what any of us had expected. Um, we had mostly, I think, just anticipated um, talking amongst ourselves because for all the for all the jokes that we make, I think I think we enjoy each other's company. Is that <laughs> here's here's the real question, Matt? Would you call <laughs> us your friends? <laughs> um, or just colleagues? Next question. This is this is a light happy episode. Let's, let's not get back into that. One. I've all still right. not met um, two of you. Yeah, this I is still sad. have to meet Derek and surprisingly Andrew. Yeah, because it's a bigger island than people think. I think I'm the only one who has met everyone. Because apparently, wherever Andrew and Alistair live on their island is too far to drive to meet up. 
So I'm just going to start calling it your island, a- Andrew and Alistair's island, <laughs> because that's that's how it exists in my mind now. Um, all right. Well, with that in mind, uh, we're going to move to one of our questions. Okay, so the first uh, proper question in that sense is, I believe, about grape juice, uh, something along the lines of, why is it that some of us use grape juice and some of us use wine? Or is it the appropriateness of using grape juice? Somebody help me out here. All right. Yeah. So the question was, in, in light of the long tradition of using wine um, within the church, uh, why, on what basis would some churches use grape juice? And presumably, is that permissible? Um, Zachary Finn asked this question, as did Sarah Finn. I have no idea if there's a relation, but um, apparently lots of questions. And if there is the Finn household about this. So this has been quite a uh, live debate in our, this has been quite a live debate in our team as a church. We've talked about it quite a lot um, over the last few years because uh, our tradition is the other way around. Our tradition is much shorter than the traditions that some of you guys come from. Um, but the tradition has always been you, know, you because there might be alcoholics there, so you do grape juice because what's to be lost by that? And it's very much let's make things as accessible to, as possible to people, and we don't want to cause people to stumble. And so the Romans 14, I will not drink wine or I do anything that will cause my brother to sin, um, has been used as the grounding for saying, no, obviously it would be grape juice, and why would you even use wine? So people in my circles generally struggle with the idea that you might use wine in the same way that some others from a more sacramental tradition, we struggle in reverse. And I think, and I have been uh, engaging in that quite a bit because I think I'm eager that the symbolism means more than simply a red drink and that there is a lot of biblical significance to wine, which I'm sure we can elaborate on. But um, I don't think it's just the fact that it's red. I think it's the fact that it's the symbol of joy and gladdening the heart of man and new creation and water into wine and wine flowing over the mountains and the prophets and symbolizing a lot of that sort of thing as well as the wedding feast and so on and it's deliberately a celebratory drink as as what and and it's red and has various other sim- symbolisms to it as well um and so i was what we've actually settled on is that on our regular sunday gatherings we now we would continue to use grape juice as we would have but we do have occasional like good friday or something we'd have occasional events in which we say in advance we're going to do it with wine and then we do but we even there are offering the option for people who want to go to a different part of the room to take something that's non-alcoholic. Now, we've had a lot of debate back and forth about that, but it just for somebody who came from a different sort of physiology, it might be interesting to hear that there would be pockets of Christendom where, in my in my context, almost every church I know would, that they would, most of them wouldn't go anywhere near having wine on a Sunday because they would be so concerned about the sort of alcoholism, Romans 14 thing. And I don't know how widespread that is, but that's where we are on it. And I am more pushing us in an oinological direction. Uh, so I just, oinological. I, where else would I get to use the word oinological? <laughs> Seriously. You just have to drop it in. But yeah, Alistair. so that's how, we, that's how we thought about it. Alistair. You are the liturgical <laughs> theologian. Yeah, so, Way in. <laughs> I think one of the key questions that I think Andrew touched upon is the question of how wine symbolizes within the celebration of the supper is it primarily there because of its color that it looks like blood does it look like blood um or is it there because it serves some larger symbolic um sets of symbolic connotations and i think it's the latter so for instance in some churches like in lutheran churches they're prepared to celebrate communion using white wine 
Now, I think that misses out on some of the things that it's supposed to symbolise, but I can understand why they do it. And in some ways, I can see more sense going in with white wine than with grape juice, um, although I see grape juice as a, a fitting um, substitute in situations where it's necessary to substitute for wine. But one of the things that we have in mind here when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper is it's a celebration of joy and it's a celebration that tests people's hearts. And wine is associated with both of these things. It tests the heart for wisdom. And it's wine that discerns between the wise ruler and the foolish person. Wine is the drink of rest. It's the drink that you drink at the end of the day when you finish your work. And it's a celebration of what Christ has achieved, that he has brought us into rest. It's a celebration of, it's a celebration of communion with each other and the joy that exists within that. And frankly, I don't know about you, but grape juice isn't usually the drink I drink in those sorts of contexts. It doesn't have those connotations, <laughs> whereas wine does. And Warm milk. so I think it's, <laughs> it's important to have wine and the joy that comes with that. The description of the, um, the victory of God in scripture is when we have this feast of wine um, that's laid out for his people. And... I think that communion expresses something of that. Now, when people have allergies or um, or for other reasons they are alcohol- recovering alcoholics, I think we should pl- provide some substitute. But I think it's important that be a substitute rather than a, a replacement for everyone. I think we need to recognise that there are, it's possible to have a substitute without changing the practice for everyone. This is difficult for many of us from the church backgrounds we come from because temperance and teetotalism are very big issues for many of our church backgrounds. And that goes back a long way. And there are good reasons why people were opposed to the culture of drinking and all these other sorts of things. And so bringing in the use of wine needs care and sensitivity. But I think it's a good route to take. We need to do that if possible. Matt? Okay, so Alistair, can I ask you, um, with this sort of approach to wine as celebratory and the the communion service as a celebration, um, how much does it matter what kind of wine that you use? So you mentioned the people who use white wine versus um, uh, sort of grape juice and that being an improvement over grape juice. Um, What about like port wine? which is a very sweet wine, a very kind of rich, um, uh, absolutely celebratory and dessert type wine. Um, I like the idea of port for communion. I think... Does it lose... Here's what I would want to know, because I've I've been in some churches that have used that. Um, Does it lose the kind of gritty texture of um, the fact that it's, you know, Good Friday and lose all of the kind of... um, the, the the suffering components yep. of what we're actually celebrating. Well, I think there's a number of things that communion celebrates and there are different elements within that that can bring in different sets of connotations and sometimes it's good to vary these things. So when we're talking about the celebration of communion, often we cel- almost solely focus upon the context of Christ's impending death on the celebration of the Last Supper this sort of context. 
But communion is also related to the many meals that Jesus enjoyed with his disciples after his resurrection, which looked back to that Last Supper, but also celebrated the communion that they had together, the manifestation of his appearance. So we have, for instance, the road to Emmaus, they arrive at their their accommodation and they celebrate and Christ is revealed in the breaking of bread. And this is a celebratory meal, um, one that becomes a site of joy. And so it harkens back to the sorrow before um, before the cross, because they don't know that Christ is risen yet, but also looks forward to this greater celebration of Christ is among us now. He's alive. He's with us. And we declare the Lord's death and we declare it until he comes. And there's this sort of tension between the joy of expectation and the joy of he is risen again, and also the sorrow of the, the shadow of the cross. And it's the same with the celebration of um, communion using leavened or unleavened bread. Do we focus upon the unleavened bread as that purging out the old leaven of sin and wickedness and all these other principles of life in the world? Or do we see it as celebrating with leavened bread, celebration of the introduction of the new leaven of the spirit at Pentecost? As we see in the Old Testament, leaven is introduced to the sacrifices at the celebration of Pentecost. So there are different sides to these symbolisms, and often I think it's important to recognise both of them um, without allowing one practice to eclipse the other dimensions of the symbolism. So I'd argue for a certain degree of variety on these um, celebrations, but I would lean in favour of the ce- of the very positive, upbeat celebration. That's how we declare his death, not as something um, primarily characterized by sorrow but as something as a victory that we look back on and we declare it in the form of a victory um by celebrating as we would celebrate a great victory yeah this has been interesting to to hear you guys discuss i i have for most of my life been in you know grape juice churches grape juice evangelicalism um we'll just call it that and then recently in moving we (laughs) there's a post there somewhere um, and, and recently in moving, we, we, we got to a Presbyterian church that celebrates with wine and they, they actually have both. They have wine and grape juice kind of accounting for, and they offer it both times, uh, accounting for, you know, the, the, the sensitivities that, that, um, we all pointed to. Um, but it, what, what's, what's, what's been surprising for my wife and I is, um, usually the celebration has been more for us in the past focused on that kind of gloomier this is this is a this is a time to contemplate your sins and your forgiveness and but in like more of a almost confessional penitential um sense and there's something to that but that there's at this church has the the celebration has been far much far more on the um hey this is the kingdom feast this is you know sins are forgiven this is this is this is this is a joyful this is a joyful celebration and um it's it's been an interesting um shift in even the it even i think opens up the communal dimension to the supper more in that sense because when you're doing the when you're focusing on the Christ has died for our sins and and kind of the the retrospective focus on the cross there is a tendency to go inward and focus on your own particular individual sins that he died for and and there's almost an inward focused 
which is again fine but when it opens out into the um the the joyful dimension there is that communal looking up looking out looking next to you to the 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 other church members that you're uh, celebrating with so um yeah that's just been another dimension that i thought was interesting but with that, let's move on to the next question. So, uh, which would be, fellas, um, I think there was one about academics. Uh, Matt, you had that question. Yeah, so uh, uh, one person asked, and I thought this was interesting, that in light of conversations about the Benedict Option, um, about the, the shape that Christianity should take in the world, whether or not we're a my, moral minority, et cetera, et cetera, um, are professing, professing Christian scholars better off investing in applying to or working for academic institutions in their own religious tradition or in entering the more contested spaces of secular academia? Um, I think this is, I mean, it's a question that is certainly pertinent to academics. I think it could potentially apply to any number of spheres um, would um social service workers, for instance, be better investing in uh, approaching social services work in their own denominational backgrounds or going into contested um, places in secular academia? Should lawyers um, work for specifically religious causes or should they go into um, more hostile um, public environments and so on? Um, so that's the question. Yeah, um, I because I have the least experience and the least knowledge of this. My I'm just going to weigh in first. Um, my gut instinct is to say it's something it's something sort of moot in that academic jobs in general are kind of scarce for a PhD. So there's a level of go for where you can get a job and trust that God is guiding you there um, because there's valid work to do in both arenas. I think there's valid work to be done at universities with your uh, of your own religious tradition and background, uh, shoring up the defenses, building. Um, I mean, that's that's kind of a negative way of putting it, but you know, building the tradition, pouring into you know the, the inward work and, and so on and so forth. But then there's also that that level of going out and engaging and and being a a a on a sense, since more proactive or aggressive witness in that, in that way. I mean, I've, I've seen academics do both well and suit both well, and neither is running from something and neither is necessarily a waste of time. So to be honest, the parameters of where you can get a job are <laughs> probably going to limit whether or not you, you focus one way or the other, but that's just my quick two cents. You guys who are closer to the situation? Thoughts? I think employability, I mean, what, what you want it for is, I guess, is, is the question, the first thing that would occur to me. I think you're absolutely right, Derek, that they would, I think it, it's, if you wanted to work in a mainstream university, obviously getting a seminary um, it, qualification is not, doesn't make it impossible, but it makes it a lot harder. Um, but if you know that you're doing it because you want to, you want to up, you know, upskill yourself as a sort of preacher, teacher, theologian within the context of a church as we've talked about before and as i suppose in different ways alistair and i are both doing um although we are both doing it at mainstream universities you wouldn't necessarily need to i think in the, in the uk that the context is so different that the number and range and 
I suspect probably level as well of the seminary options, we don't even call them seminaries really, mainly here, um, is so much smaller uh, that the just number of instit evangelical institutions that you might go and study in are much fewer. There's much fewer of them. There's much fewer big hitters working in them. Uh, and that makes it probably less of an less of an option to some making the choice here as would, then would be the case in the States. Um, but I think, yeah, it, outcomes is going to be the key thing to driving it. I don't think there's a right or wrong, but I think the kind of outcome you want and where you want to work at the end of it is obviously going to drive the decision to make. I, mean, I, I suspect for many it has. Um, but in, in my case, even, and I guess Alistair as well, even though we are not looking, well, I'm not looking for an academic post at the end of my PhD. I wanted to study in a mainstream university anyway because I felt that the level of, yeah, in the, in a UK context, the level of intensity and rigour would probably be that much greater. And it was also a very convenient nearby option with a great faculty. Um, but that might not hold true in the same way in the States. I think also the question is, um, if the, um, are, 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 is, are contested pluralistic universities worth saving, as it were? Right. Like, are they just the kind of places that Christians should seek to enter anymore? Or should Christians who do want academic positions uh, aim for their own religious institutions? That, I think, is the, the gist and the force of the question. I think it's worth recognizing that many of us live in rather different contexts. There are far more developed yeah. evangelical institutions in the U.S. than there are over here. Whereas over here, we have a very strong institutional connection between the established church and academic institutions like the one that I've been at at Durham. There is a very close connection and their lives are very closely intertwined in all sorts of different ways. And so I think within those sort of situations, there's something worth preserving, that connection between the church and the life of the university. And the academic rigour that it encourages is healthy for us. On the other hand, I think in many other contexts, um, focusing upon an academic context would be, it would hamstring your ability to serve the church rather than provide, rather than being an institutional context that exists in unity and alongside the church, I think you find there's a breach between them and they'll pull you in very different directions. I think it's also important to consider the ways that we can think about these questions, not just from the perspective of the student who has to think tactically, what is my possibility of employability? How would my gifts be used here or there? It's also worth thinking strategically. What sort of institutions do we want to develop in the future that will enable the gifts of evangelical Orthodox students to be used in the best way possible, that they won't just be lost to institutions that have no connection with the life of the church, nor will they be sheltered within a context of a church that has no dialogue or um, challenging conversations with the world outside. And so I think that's an important set of questions that we need to look at too. Yeah, this is, I mean, there, there is, there is so much that we could delve into there. And I think even our own, our own university experiences have all played this out. Um, I'll just, I guess I'll wrap it up on one note. My undergrad was at UC Irvine. It was a secular context. And um, most of my friends were not evangelicals, not Christians. Uh, but one of my professors was a brilliant Roman Catholic who played fair by everybody, but kept an eye out 
And uh, one of my TAs was uh, a couple of them actually were were Talbot grads who were getting their PhDs in secular context, but um, they were sharp evangelical thinkers, and and uh, I was able to look to them for resources, um, and that was very helpful to me in my broad, you know, quote unquote pagan secular university setting. Um, it did me a world of good. So that, uh, I think I'll go out on that one. Um, do we want to move on to the next question, which I believe is on the very pressing concern over whether or not pets go to heaven? Fellas, do all dogs go to heaven? <laughs> is, um, is, is Pulpit and Pen still listening? Because <laughs> I may or may not have anything to say on is, this, is who? If, on if they are. Is who still listening? Oh, right. Yes. Well, you know, uh, Shakespeare boys is, uh, as I think we were called (laughs) on the internet. Um, damn you. Darn you. Just quoting Shakespeare. Um, okay. Uh, Alistair, Andrew thoughts. Matt has none. Andrew. I'm certain that Alistair's well thought through theology of animals is going to, is going to come in here. And (laughs) so I'm just waiting to see how the master responds. (laughs) <laughs> I might disappoint. <laughs> I think that we will have um, animals in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, whether there will be... And you know that's not the question as well. That is such I a know that's not the question. Um, whether those will be the specific animals that we have known here on earth is something I'm agnostic about. So C.S. Lewis, not in terms of the species, but the specific individual is. animals, as in my particular pet. Um, but I, I think we'll have dogs in heaven, and the new so, heavens and the yeah, new I, earth. I, I think would be, would, it had never it, occurred to me that you would, and I, I remember thinking, I remember being really surprised when a friend of mine showed me a poem by John Piper in which he talked about his dog Blackie being in heaven. Really? And I was really surprised because at the time I was in a kind of a, I don't know, I'm really surprised I would find myself disagreeing with John Piper about anything. And I was very, very surprised. I just suddenly thought, wow, there must be all this work through theology. of it. And it, until that point, it never even occurred to me somebody would say that because of well, they get the essence of what it is to survive death and the nature of soul and what it means to be a soul as a human being and inherit new creation and personality and personhood and all that kind of thing. Um, so I was really surprised when I came across that. Um, to hear that Alistair is agnostic on it, to me, is almost a little bit, I'm almost surprised that he's as positive as that about it, but I know that the whole last week animal discussion uh, may have played a part in that as we're now just getting animals becoming more and more human-like in our theology. Um, but I, I can't think that there would be a reason to say that they were. Um, and I, like Matt, I'm just a little bit surprised the question was raised. One of the things that Augustine has to say on this that I think is interesting, he talks about there's something about the beauty of the animal kingdom, and he thinks of the animal kingdom as... Um, characterized by mortality even before the fall um that there's a beauty to it like the beauty of the seasons um the passing even in their passing transitory um character that there is a beauty and an appropriate um witness to god's glory and his creation now i wonder is there going to be something like the seasons within the new heavens and the new earth um i suspect there are and whether that means that there will be um, animals within the new heavens and the new earth, will they be immortal? 
I I presume we will see animals in the new heavens and the new earth. I presume they will be. So, but that's not the question, Alistair. It's not the question. question. Do the the, the animals now go to uh, heaven later? And I think the only way to think about this is through metaphysics. Um, Contrary to the pulpit and pen people, um, it's not insane to say that humans are part animal. Um, We are human animals. We're a unique kind of animal. Um, uh, Absolutely uh, distinguishable from any other, any other form of animal, but obviously having lots in common with animals. But what we don't have in common with animals is I think immortal souls. And, um, that substance is not transferable to all of the other substances and objects that we come into contact with. Like it's not, it's not heritable. It doesn't catch. It's, it's, it, it, we don't transfer it. Um, Uh, And so while I think um, under one description, animals have a kind of soul, um, under one description, they clearly have life. Um, You have to do a lot of work to be able to... to, Are you disputing the philosopher? ...kind of immortality. You don't have to... Are you disputing the philosopher? (laughs) No, I think think I'm agreeing with the philosopher. Um, (laughs) Well... Okay, what here, I would say that. is that, but it doesn't. You have to do more work to show immortality. Yeah, what I would okay. say is that, even though um, the quote I was just reading, uh, or the comments I was making earlier, um, even though we may not believe that animals will be immortal or are, have immortal souls, I think it is a, possible to say that there will be a beauty, um, just as the beauty of the seasons that will be seen within the new heavens and the new earth in. But no one, no one. Dis- I don't think anyone disputes. No, that. I don't think that um, avoiding but, the question by adding a different. But what I would say is, is that to say that we will not have our present pets in the new heavens and the new earth is not to say that we will not have pets. Okay, so here's where I'll jump in, and I will say this: um, I had some bit about Lewis, but it was lost in the melee. What what I wanted, what I want to. I guess posit is the possibility that even though animals do not have immortal souls, they don't have that substance. Um, and we could get into substance metaphysics some other time. Um, and even the immortality of the soul, that would be a good show. Uh, why not a, in a sense, relative, in a, uh, relative immortality in relation to us in the sense of, I don't know the the special dispensation of God uh, in, in in animals taking on properties in relation to us, kind of a an imputed value, an imputed um, grace, so to speak, where whereby they are resurrected, whereby they are brought into the new creation via their relation to us. I'm not saying that's what happens. Because I'm that- saying. It's an interesting thought, and I'm going to argue with you guys because nobody has said this. <laughs> and that was exactly what the kind of reading that I was trying to bracket off by saying that immortality is not the sort of thing that's heritable or transferable in that way. Except um, I just appeal to the sovereignty uh, of God, reason, and you can't override that. Boom. Calvinist checkmate. Well, what, one reason not to you, one reason not to would be to, to um, ask what uh, are the limits of the body that Paul uh, says will be resurrected in um, 
Romans, for instance. So what counts as soma? Um, and I think it's relatively clear that um, the limits of bodiliness are um, material. They're, they're, they're limited to my actual, the form of my own uh, physical life. And as much as the world around me shapes that, and it does, um, it's not directly equivalent to it. And one thing that happens is if you start extending um, the, the sort of human person outward beyond the limits of the body, um, the body ends up dissolving into kind of nothingness and everything becomes the body. So if you're going to go that route, uh, Derek, why, why stop at your pets? Why not include um, your house? Because for those of us without pets, um, the, the architecture that we live in um, may have just as much of an effect on our own personal identities, and we may affect uh, our own architecture and our own environments um, in just as significant a, a way as someone who has a pet would do. Um, and so why not say, well, we're, we're resurrected with houses that are that we lived in. And there's actually a, almost but a better just, biblical argument for that because they will, they will build houses and live in them. And so maybe you could actually make a more sustainable biblical argument for houses being transported into new creation. All I'm saying is you guys are heartless in your disdain <laughs> of all dogs going to heaven. And, uh, and I, I'm going to make this work just to spite you. Uh, but also I think you've, I think you've, uh, I do think you've misconstrued my position, Matthew. And uh, I might have a heavily footnoted essay headed your way later. Uh, let's move on to the next question, though. Uh, last one, I think. Uh, somebody asked about our reading habits. We seem to reference a number of books on the show, and someone's questioning, okay, how do you read all those books, and do you actually read all those books, or are you just kind of skimming them and saying you've read them, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, Alistair, it, you seem to have read all the books, so why don't you explain yourself? <laughs> I probably read about four books from cover to cover week. Um, I skim a number of others. Disgusting. And <laughs> I currently have a library of about, I think, 3,500 books. Oh I read God, quite a lot and I reference a lot of the books that I haven't read all the way through. I'll just have read a particular key chapter or something like that. But alongside that, I do a lot of online reading, try and keep in contact with the conversations that are taking place. Okay, so, so, now, so I know I want to know how, how? I tend to how do most hours, of my... How do you have a job? Like how, how <laughs> does one do a job and read as much as that because you're well, not talking I don't about reading a hundred page little flicks you're talking about no. substantial work no? I, don't, I don't understand how you have enough hours in the week well i don't sleep much and play boggle <laughs> and engage yeah, with no, yeah. small animals how, how many hours was how many hours a night do you sleep alistair are you one of those guys i probably I've sleep about four hours a night so how many hours Six. four hours a night yeah. four hours how yeah you you're one of those guys how on earth is that possible no, no, no. I, I've heard about these guys. They're, some of those academics who are constantly publishing stuff, they're all insomniacs. I know it. I know it. I've, I've, I've seen it online. There's, there's rumors. So you're one of those guys. All right. I don't feel that bad. They're Alistair and Margaret Thatcher. They're the, they're the terrible two. That's absolutely <laughs> true. Well, thanks okay. for the association. 
whatever. Iron Maiden. That's what we'll call you from now on. The Iron Maiden who knits. Um, okay. I think I, I think we should hear from Andrew. Andrew because Andrew is the only one who's um, got like a, a church ton and a family. So job, family, and yeah, I, mean, um, I, I don't think any of us. Yeah, being single is normal, a huge. Well, none of us are normal templates, are we? Because we, Derek and Matt are both students, and Alistair was until recently, and I'm kind of part time student, but still working for a church where allowed, being allowed to read as part of my job is, you know, that right. I can have. But you're closer have, to a normal. Maybe, template. yeah, maybe. I but, used I mean, to be. So what I reading at what I I read a substantially less than that. I tend to find that I've you know, I've got books on the go for devotional reasons at the moment. I'm going quite slowly, but it, I, with great growth through um, people I have one of the things which I'm really, really enjoying and getting a lot out of it at a devotional level. And so that's, a, I've got, that sort of track is often going on. So what am I reading in you know, my quiet time? Whatever. Um, I tend to do that quite slowly and tend to try and take something that, that you know, walk me through the Bible and show me a lot in it. Um, and then I've got things which are the academic theology books, which I will then, like recently went through Barclay's Paul on the Gift. I've just got uh, Tom Wright's book on Paul and his recent interpreters, and I will tend to go through those, but much more quickly. So I'll I'll read them, I'll probably read them all, or very nearly all of them. But I'll do it in a much more sustained way and have a go at it and set aside a big chunk of time to read it, where I might go several hours a day reading the book and then spend that over two or three, two, three, four days, and then I'll be done. And I'll often blog through those if I do. So I'm kind of writing and reading at the same time. Um, I don't read fiction at all. So a lot of my readings, I've hardly ever. I mean, I, I just don't enjoy it, um, which is going to really set the Anderson. But I find that actually saves up quite a lot of reading capacity for me. Because I wouldn't, for pleasure, generally read, and except unless completely passionate, like The Hunger Games or Jeffrey Archer. I just don't really like reading fiction, so I don't tend to, um, and therefore use a lot of that time to read theology <laughs> in addition to the stuff I would otherwise be reading. Um, and I know I, could, I, I don't know who is harumphing and sighing. <laughs> that's me, that's Anderson. Who else harumphs? Who um, else harumphs and, and sighs? And uh, and then I read a lot online. So I, I I spend a lot of time reading. Nothing like as much as Alistair. I do spend a lot of time reading, but I think probably because the fiction thing is in there. Um, I'm able to spend quite a lot of time reading. That. I think that's one of the I read quite a lot of sport, things as well as but I don't really like That's probably where my free reading capacity gets freed up. And of course, I'm allowed to do a lot of it in my job, so I feel like I can get to read a lot, but only because of the peculiarities of my situation. Now, Matt, rebut. <laughs> yeah, Matt, explain yourself. No, no, I'm, I'm move beyond harumph. I'm uh, such an I'm I'm such an abnormal case that I'm not actually worth listening to on read. What does that even mean? Oh, I'm so I'm abnormal. A, I'm special. Don't listen to me. Okay, <laughs> I see the game there. That means that I'm a doctoral candidate whose job is to read. And so um, not having uh, any obligations besides being a doctoral candidate. Um, yeah, but you existed in some pre-doctoral habits. status, didn't you? Uh, wasn't it a time when you weren't a doctor? <laughs> no, that's not been the case. So presumably some sort of previous memory, a previous instantiation of Matt that you could draw on to be able to inform listeners. Well, again, I don't think it's a normal case, only because... Um, so much of my reading was oriented towards um, the books that I was writing um, for the years leading up to. Um, and that's that's honestly how I do most of my reading. Um, if I've got a big writing project, I'll read for it. Um, and uh, 
and so it's it's all kind of tied to output for me, except for fiction, um, uh, which I think is the most important thing that I could possibly read, and that any of us could possibly read. Um, any of us, including Andrew if, Wilson, if we're not, is that what you're saying? Especially including Andrew <laughs> Wilson, um, Such a it's jacket. astonishing. <laughs> I I can only presume that. Um, because Andrew is British and I, I suspect has read a lot, even as a child, um, that he has already made his way through, for instance, the Dickens canon. Um, and so doesn't see it. It was actually, he sort of finished the off. on. It's actually, I had to read an excerpt <laughs> from that thing about preparing a wild goose. And it basically said they had goose for dinner, but it took him about seven pages and took him about 15 minutes to read it out loud. And I just thought, I don't think me and Finn are going to get on very well. That was when I was about 17 and I haven't also, also the Dickens canon was loosely based on his life, so it brought up some memories. And uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, well, okay, so I now exist in the doctoral candidate, but not really doctoral candidate phase. I'm I'm still doing coursework, so I have to read for courses. But about two months ago, three months ago, um. I was working as a college and young adult director. Uh, and so actually a good amount of my time was available to read for the job. Cause I was supposed to be able to read and study for preaching and teaching. And then it's what I do on my free time. So my days off were just spent reading. Um, so I don't know. I don't spend, I don't read as much as Al. Nobody notice how nobody actually noted how many books they read a week after Alistair did. I'll cop to it probably about two, an average of two a week or something like that, uh, depending on the month, maybe less. So anywhere between four to eight books in a month, depending on whether or not there's lectures or articles to read or whether or not there's a lot of writing to do. So writing slows me down. So yeah. Um, and I think I have, I think I own about a sixth of the book's that Alistair owns. So there, it's my confession. I think it's important to note that, I think it's important to note that certainly in my condition, I'm, um, although I'm in a relationship, my girlfriend is in the US at the moment and I have no children. For those reasons, I have a lot more time in my hands than most people would have. And as a result, I can just do that much more reading. And so I don't think I love it's that we, fair to hold. We describe Alistair's situation as his condition. <laughs> just make note of the medical terminology. Um, all right. With that said, that's our reading habits. Uh, we're we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, but thank you. We want to take this opportunity to say thank you to our listeners. Uh, obviously, without you, this would not have gone where it's gone. We've been very grateful uh, for your attention, for your ears, for your input, for your support uh, over these last, I don't know, year and a half or so. We hope to continue delivering quality conversations and content that builds up the church um, and the world. So that's our show for today. Blessings. Uh, feel free to share the episode online. Give us ratings and reviews on iTunes. And that's a wrap.